by persevering, they produce a crop. We could say this, by persevering, they produce a harvest. What is the harvest of the kingdom of God? The Bible says it's not what we eat or drink. It is three things. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Let's say those together. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, I know you don't like, I know you don't like speakers that ask me to say those things. Because when I'm in the seat, it's only like, why are you doing that? But there's a method to it, so let's do it again. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy. Proverbs also states that what we speak out of our mouth, we hear, and it goes back in and registers down the line. Did you know that? You know, that's a sound biblical principle. That's why memorization works better if we say it out loud. It's a biblical principle. So if we say, once again, righteousness, peace, and joy, somewhere down in there, that that has registered with us. All right. So if we nurture that seed, if we take care of it, we water it, which is part of what this is about, watering the seed. It grows. Now, Mark took us to that passage last week, passage of the sower. He also took us to one more passage at the end of his message, which is kind of my segue into where I want to go today, and that was the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. So I'm going to just flip over to Malachi and This is a good verse to pay attention to because it's heavy on your pastor's heart. He's he's preached and taught this verse for several years now. It it just comes out like salt out of a salt shaker. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament, verse 6, the last verse in the Old Testament. Let me, verse 5 and 6. Let me read it to you. Verse 5. See, I will send to you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. In other words, this is something that the Lord intends to do before the end of the age. This is something he intends to do before the trumpets and bowls come at the, in Revelation. This is something God is doing right now if we can perceive it. And pastor mentioned it. It's not going to happen in the last month before. It's not going to happen in the last year before. This is something that takes place all the time. God is doing it. He's doing it so much and so often that we actually can't perceive it. We perceive something that goes splash, bang, there it is, whoa. But if it happens quietly, person to person, in the heart, it's really not perceived. But this is what God is doing. And this is also what's on pastor's heart very much. Listen, verse 6. Why will he send this spirit of Elijah? I believe it's the spirit of Elijah. Who came after Elijah? Which prophet? Elisha. What did Elisha receive from Elijah? A double portion. A mantle. That's a picture of fatherhood. If you will see it. It's not just just a prophet. 
Elijah was a powerful prophet of God, but had a spiritual son who trained under him, Elisha, and Elisha had the boldness to ask for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah. And it was granted him. It's a picture of fatherhood. As a father, we always desire our offspring to exceed us, to do better than we did, to go farther than we did, particularly in things of the kingdom of God. So <clears throat> the result of the passing of a spiritual mantle from father to son accomplishes this in the Lord's purpose. Verse 6. To turn the heart of the father to his children. Now the word turn there in the Hebrew is the word used throughout the Old Testament for repent. Repent is a pictorial term. It simply means I'm going in this direction I stop and I repent and I go in the right direction. I change again. That can happen with our thoughts. That can happen with our words. That can happen with our actions. It happens when we repent of our sins. Repenting of our sins doesn't just mean, oh, man, I got myself in a jam. This was so stupid. I am so sorry. I'm sorry for myself. Let's see if I can get out of this. No, 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 no. It, it's, it's like this is not right. I'm going to repent, and in the, in the parable we're going to see later on, in just a few minutes, the son repents. He turns around. He says, I'm going to go back to my father. God wants to turn the hearts of the fathers back to where they should be, to turn them again, restore them to their children. But it doesn't stop there. He wants to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And in observation of this, Mark, Pastor Mark just threw this in at the last seven minutes of his message. He made an observation. He says, we actually need, he said, we actually need sons today who are restored to their fathers to receive a spiritual inheritance from their fathers. He said, we have sons who want their inheritance without working for it and without the responsibility that's required when you have the inheritance. And we have sons who have learned in our society to rebel against authority. Now, he wasn't being unkind. He was making an observation of society, the way society is going. All right. From that point, I need to go to the message I want to bring to you this morning try to do that speedily and in good order. Back to Luke chapter 15, please. When Jesus told a story or a parable, he took a, a situation that the people of his time would easily relate to and recognize, and he would talk to them about that, and hidden in that story were principles about the kingdom of God. Hidden in that story were spiritual truths. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three short stories, two very short and one a little more lengthy. 
he tells them. I'd like to suggest that in telling a story, particularly three stories in a single context as it is in Luke, Jesus is painting a picture. He's an artist. He's giving us a verbal picture of something. And so it's up to us to understand what he's painting and what larger portrait he's making out of three smaller paintings. Each of these stories have common threads running through them. Now, I'd like to read through this entire chapter. Now, I know that's going to take time, but it's important. You, you need to hear it because we're asking ourselves, why did Jesus tell these stories? And then we're asking, what are these stories saying? What is Jesus saying to the people through these stories? So let's read. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered among themselves, and this is what they said, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. On hearing that, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He then calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now Jesus steps back from the story and gives them a little clue about what he's really been talking about. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Going on to the next story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and she says to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. He steps away from the story. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continues. Now, this story is a little more lengthy, and we're probably a little more familiar with it. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, delivered, he divided his property between the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth there in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a famine, a severe famine in the land, and that whole country began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was so hungry he wanted to eat the very stuff, the very pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything to eat. When he came to his senses, key phrase, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. He's getting kind of down on himself. I, so a plan begins to form in his mind. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his home. But while he was a still, still a long way off, he said, his father saw him. And he's filled with compassion. Remember the scripture I read to you at the beginning of the service about our father? He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, here's the rehearsed, okay, here's the rehearsed speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the speech went on to say, make me like one of your hired men. But he, he couldn't finish the speech because the father, the father who's very compassionate and slow to anger, doesn't harbor a grudge doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. That, that father, that father, he went and left. Oh, this is such a great story. But the father, Jesus says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a great feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began celebrating. And then it goes on to talk about the older son. And I'm not going to read that portion. Hopefully next week we'll look into the older son. Because there's a story to be had there. All right. First question. Why did Jesus tell these three stories? We find the answer in verses 1 and 2. Now, tax collectors were really great people in Jesus' day. They were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government, and their job was to extract from Jewish people the tax that the Roman government wanted. Now, do you know how tax collectors lived? They had the authority to overcharge you taxes and scrape off that extra as their own. They were very popular people in Jesus' day. It says in verse 1 that tax collectors and sinners gathered around Jesus to hear him. Sinners is just a, a in, in the setting, in the context, in the context here of Jesus' day, I'm giving you this context with no application to us necessarily. You need to understand. They were common laborers. They were uneducated people. They weren't in the high class. They were in the low class of society. They were considered irreligious people. They were considered spiritually unclean, which meant if you were really a godly person, you didn't even have business dealings with them. Get the picture? These are the ones that are finding the very Son of God. And we have to ask ourselves, why were they attracted to these guys? Now, the Pharisees in verse 2, 
and the scribe. This is a whole different group. So when Jesus begins to tell his stories, he's telling his stories to a mixed group of people. Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, it would have been hard for most of us here to like them. They were very religious. But they had the job of preserving the ancient Jewish religion, which was comprised of the law, the Ten Commandments, and the Torah, the oral law that was compiled throughout the years since the Ten Commandments had been given. Part of the way that they preserved and protected the law was to try to live it to the utmost and keep away from those who didn't live it. And so they were kind of a spiritual or religious elite people. They were the ones that wouldn't consider associating with the publicans or the sinners. The scribes were teachers of the law. And they were a sect or a part of the Pharisees. They didn't like what was happening. They didn't like that Jesus was there because of who Jesus claimed he was. And they said in their hearts, they, they, they said with the limited revelation that they had, they said, this man can't be of God because look at what he's doing. So what they failed to see and what was always a thorn in the relationship between the Pharisees and Jesus is that Jesus has always revealed his heart. Always. I want to just take the time to amplify that. If you want to keep your finger here in John chapter or in Luke chapter 15, go to the right and we're going to go to the book of John for a moment. And I'm just going to stop briefly at a couple of scriptures to read them just to amplify this. John chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20. <coughs> Jesus, and, and on your own, you can go to the preceding verses to see why Jesus said these things. It's always good to check the context in which you find scripture and try to, try to go back into the culture and then pull the principle into our culture. That's how we get the most out of the word of God. Understanding why it was back there that what was said was said and then finding a bridge to bring it to us. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, I can't do anything by myself. Now I'm paraphrasing that a little bit. He said the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father So that becomes a, a great lens that we use when we read the words in red in the gospel. Because whatever Jesus is doing, it is what he perceives in his father's heart. And remember that he, before his incarnation, was with his father for eternity unmeasured before. Do you think he knew his father's heart? Absolutely. Okay, one more in John. That would be John chapter 8, just a couple pages to the right, or scroll down if you have your phone. Verse 27. <coughs> they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own, 
but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. Just like that seed of the kingdom is in you. And the Holy Spirit is hovering over that seed like he hovered over in Genesis 1 and 2. He hovered over creation. The Holy Spirit is hovering over that seed. He wants to watch over that seed. He wants to work with you to nourish that seed and allow it to produce fruit. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do. I always do what pleases him. The Pharisees couldn't understand that Jesus is embracing sinners and publicans with his followers. They thought they missed it. They totally missed it. Now, I don't have to I won't spend a lot of time on building the bridge, but do we have marginalized society? Do we have portion of our society that's not well thought of because of choices they make, diseases they may have, lifestyles that they embrace? I don't, I don't have to go on. Um, but what is the Father's heart toward them? That's what Jesus was talking about when he told those three stories. He was saying, you're criticizing me. <laughs> you're muttering in your, in, amongst yourselves that I'm with these unclean people. Let, let me tell you what my father's like. Let me tell you more what my father gets really happy about. That's what those three stories were about. You know, and the truth of the matter... is that in some way, as Jesus touched those people, in some way, the church needs to touch those marginalized people in our society. Because, because we represent the kingdom, and represent the kingdom, we represent the Father and his heart. And if we want to, as one of the phrases in our songs, please him, we just have to spend some time meditating on these stories to find out what makes him happy. What causes rejoicing in heaven? Okay, that's enough. I was going to go to John chapter 14, but that, that's enough time spent on that. Um, I do want to share this other uh, picture with you. So let's jump back to Luke 15. All right? And then, depending on the layout of your Bible, it might even be open to Luke 14. I want to give you an illustration of how far the Pharisees took the law to represent righteousness, how far they missed it. So in uh, chapter uh, verse 1 of Luke chapter 14. This is just an illustration, but it helps us. And, and to see what Jesus appeals to, very interesting. One Sabbath, verse 1, chapter 14, Luke, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Okay? 
these protectors of the law, these protectors of the ancient Jewish religion. And he was being carefully watched. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? I mean, hey, come on over to my house and eat dinner with me. And we're going to analyze everything you say and do. That would be a comfortable sitting, wouldn't it? All right. And so there in front of him, in front of Jesus, was a man suffering from dropsy. So Jesus sees that, and something happens in his heart that connects with his father immediately. This is what we have to see. Immediately. The father's heart is vibrating within Jesus. Because he can't do anything he doesn't see his father doing. He can't say anything he doesn't hear his father say. So he asks the Pharisees, Hey, uh, guys, you're experts in the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now this is referring back to the fourth commandment. Honor the Sabbath to keep it holy. Don't do any work on it. And then there were some in the Torah, some in excess hundreds and hundreds of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath because you wouldn't be keeping it holy. That's how far it got out of hand. But, you know, the Pharisees, it says, didn't answer him. And so Jesus took just took a hold of the man and healed him. <clears throat> and sent him on his way. Now, they were probably steamed, do you think? Those Pharisees, they were steaming. So here's what he said to them. Notice what he appeals to. He says, hey, now this is NIV. If you have uh, New King James, it only talks about the ox or the mule. But NIV I chose because this is what he says. Which one of you, if your son or your ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you not get it out immediately? The reason I like this is, what is he appealing to in them? Fatherhood. See, he, He's saying, if your son on the Sabbath fell into a well, would you not get him out? So he's appealing to fatherhood because he healed that man on the Sabbath because Father Abba wanted him to. Can you see that? It's a very interesting observation, isn't it? All right. <clears throat> very quickly. The first picture Jesus painted was as a, of a lost sheep, carelessly wandering, separating itself from the fold. Let's put it in context. Very often, small communities had a community flock and shepherds assigned to that to watch them, various people owning those, those sheep. If one of them strayed, the shepherd indeed would put it intimately up on his shoulder and return to the flock and drive it to the village and call to the village, call to the family, the larger family, rejoice with me. And they indeed would rejoice because they were part of the community. And this lost sheep would come. You can see the picture that Jesus is painting here. The people are relating to it. And then he says, there's joy in heaven. And of course, Jesus is talking about his father's heart, but he's talking about himself there. He's the shepherd of our souls, isn't he? Have you ever wandered off foolishly off the spiritual path? Not purposely, but just kind of foolishly, not paying attention. Jesus is painting a picture of his father's heart. 
the one who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, who doesn't harbor his anger or a grudge. But as far as the east is from the west, so far has he separated our transgressions from us. Second picture Jesus paints is of a lost coin. Now it says in the scripture there were ten coins. Let's set a, set a context here, a cultural context. The single silver coin was probably equivalent to a day's wage. That's no small amount of money to lose. But more interesting than that, a married woman, through her life, had collected ten silver coins and strung them together and wore them on her head as a sign of of marriage. It would be like the marriage ring. It's interesting that there were ten silver coins and one of them was lost. Now ladies, if you've ever misplaced your ring and don't know where it is, that sets off certain emotions in you, doesn't it? And you might very well search high and low. Palestinian homes of the common people in Jesus' day were very small and usually had only about one window to let in, let in ambient light. The floor was uh, hardened earth <clears throat> and to keep the dust down, they placed weeds over that. Now one coin is missing. So she lights a lamp and she begins to sweep from one corner to the next corner because that ring could be in the corner it could be under some of the weeds it could be covered with dust from it, it, and hard to see but the lamp when she partially uncovers it the lamp will cause the coin to glisten and she will find it now the coin was lost by no fault of its own it might have been Someone's carelessness or someone's misrepresentation of something. But nevertheless, the coin is lost. And Jesus says of that picture, wow, you know, when that coin is found, the angels are going to rejoice in heaven. Last story. Putting it in context... A Jewish tradition and oral law said that if a father had two sons, now this is a father who has an estate, the older son would get two-thirds of the estate upon his death, and the younger son one-third. Or if the father, it was, if it was a farm homestead, and the father wanted to retire, he would assign two-thirds of the estate to the older son, one-third to the younger son. But this son is seduced, by the lust of freedom and adventure, the younger son. So he, in essence, says to his father, in essence, he says to his father, I wish you were dead. I want my share of the inheritance now. That's the slap that the father received in this parable. I can't wait. I can't wait for you to die. Give it to me now. Ouch. Uh. But the father distributes. The older son gets two-thirds. The younger son gets a third. And off he goes. And you know the rest of the story. Did the father search for the son? 
unlike the other parables, it doesn't seem to, except we have a clue. It says that while his son was yet a long way off, his father saw him and he recognized something, though the son was beaten down. His heart leapt because this was his son. He knew it beyond a doubt. So in essence, though he didn't go to the far country, he was searching for his son. Put yourself in that father's heart for a minute. An estranged son. And he starts to come home. And you don't need a telegram. You, you, you know your son. And that father could not help himself. Many scholars feel he was quite aged and his sight was even failing, yet he recognized his son and he ran to him. And he wouldn't bargain with his son. Have you ever done that with the Lord? Just, Lord, I, I, I'll be sad. Just, just a little dusty corner in heaven, that's all I want. I, I don't deal with all these rewards, you know. Just... Just let me squeak in. You know the Father's heart can't do that. He, that's, he can't bring himself to do that. It was full reinstatement to sonship. There's other context I can't give you because of time. Here's the tag for us this morning. Christianity, Christian religion, is the only world religion that presents God as a God who pursues man. It's the only one. You can check the writings of all the other religions. They state and their practitioners teach that you must do this and this and this and try to achieve God and then you're not sure that you will achieve his favor. But you, brothers and sisters and I, we have a father who's desperate for us and if we wander off just a little bit if we lose our way just a little bit like the sheep he's coming after us not with a stick not with a whip but with a heart if we if we just you know kind of like the coin, just from someone else's carelessness or ill advice, we get off course. He's going to sweep and sweep and sweep, and he's going to use the light of the Holy Spirit to look for you. And when that light casts itself upon you, you will know it because your heart will be quickened, and that's the glint of the coin coming to the woman that tells her it's right there under all those, those weeds in the corner. That's where it is. You see that glint? See that response? Or like the son who purposely said, I, you know, that son saw his father's home as restriction rather than freedom. And he thought freedom was out there and sin always lies to us that way. Always lies to us that way. The father was there, steady, watching the road. <laughs> watching the road. So 
This is the Heavenly Father. This is your Heavenly Father. You may find yourself in any one of those settings, stories. But Jesus is painting a picture that the Pharisees could not see. Can you see it? Can you see it in your life? This is a marvelous, marvelous truth. And maybe you're realizing <clears throat> in your own life, you haven't gone over the deep edge, but, but maybe you're on the dusty floor somewhere there. And there's a few things obscuring the vision, but there's a father who's sweeping and lighting a lamp. Lighting a lamp for you. Can you come on the keys for a moment? Because we're going to close. I'd like for you to stand with me, please. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom of God. And when Pastor Mark last week talked about Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, talking about turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, this is a multi-generational work that God is doing. Hear me now. Culture, hear me now. Culture resists that work of God. Culture says it's not cool. our culture but I'll tell you what's cool having a father who cares enough to come after even if you and I purposely stray he'll, he'll, he'll bide his time and he'll watch until our hearts are ready and then he'll run to us I don't know where you are today I don't know what your week has held this is what I know you are part of the kingdom and that kingdom is ruled by a father who is compassionate and gracious whose love abounds who will not be angry forever or harbor a grudge in his heart who finds joy in removing your transgressions far from you This is great cause for joy. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Today's message was a portrait of a father's joy. Next week, if I have the opportunity to speak to you, it will be an invitation for you to enter into the father's joy. See, it's listen, it's not enough to be the lost son who finds his way home. The call is really for you to graduate to being a father who calls the last lost son home. Would you uh, close your eyes, please? Now, this is important because I'm going to ask for a raise of hands. So please, please do this. Please close your eyes. If you relate personally to any one of the three pictures, Jesus painted this morning. I want you to just slip your hand up. Pastor, I, I'm, I can see myself there. Just go ahead. I just want to take note of that. Any of the three pictures? Okay. Honesty is really great. You can put your hands down. As, as Pastor always does, I'm going to dismiss in a moment, but I, I'm inviting you to come forward for prayer. 
for any reason, but particularly if you want to reconnect the reality of a father who's always searching for you and has love and not anger. If you want to re- you want that to be pressed on your heart afresh and anew this morning, then I'm going to ask you to come after service. The elder, elders and I, Mike and Butch, and I will pray with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your word. I ask that you would do what only you can do with this word. I pray for the seed of the kingdom of God that exists within every believer, that it would be nurtured by the Holy Spirit, that it would begin to produce the harvest of righteousness, peace, and joy in their lives. And Lord, as a practical application, that's what we pray for that shooter in Parkland, Florida. He's way, he's way down the road. But you're a father who wants to rejoice in him coming to you. Bless this congregation, I pray. May they feel your presence throughout this week. May they sense a father's love upon them in everything that they do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.